you and I came out of an undifferentiated identity with all things, then we learned we were separate. But you have had many experiences in your life, one way or another, where you have felt that kind of connection with all things. Maybe it's lying under the stars. Maybe it's uh, uh, it occurred in church. Maybe it occurred uh, whenever you transcended your separateness. It, could have occurred in a traumatic experience. It could have occurred when you lost somebody you loved. It could have occurred uh, chemically. It could have occurred through meditation. There are a thousand of ways it could occur. But see, the predicament is once you have experienced that connection with all things, and that's part of your humanity too, then you don't know what to do with that, and so you end up denying it to go back into your separateness. You live with this predicament, this tension that's created by the statement, we are all one, but it's my television set. Hi everyone, it's Raghu for Ramdas here and now. I know it's been a while since I've... Uh, done the introduction here for Ramdas podcasts, which are excerpts of talks he's given over these many years. I wanted to find inspiration for myself, actually, for the new year and something that I could share with, uh, with our Be Here Now Network audience. And I was really fortunate. I did find something that was really... Um, so crystal clear, something to look forward to, contemplation for next year, shall we say. And uh, it's, it's around generosity. And I just had heard Ramdas tell this story, uh, and I'm going to play uh, the excerpt um, in a few moments. But uh, it was so right on and inspiring. Uh, before I get into it, though, I want to say... I also found out that I personally have been doing these podcasts for 10 years. I didn't quite realize it. That's a lot of time that went down the pike. It's pretty uh, unbelievable. But yeah, this has been going on for 10 years. The network itself is it'll be going on seven years next uh, summer, but I had started before. Uh, before the Be Here Now Network existed, and we were putting these podcasts out through our uh, various platforms. Um, so this inspiration is around generosity, and uh, I, it's just so, it just recalled for me so many different incidents uh, of a very similar nature, and that is, in Ramdas, uh, this comes from uh, a course that he did, How Can I Help? And uh, just not, I won't expand too much on uh, the story as Ramdas tells it so wonderfully, but basically, it's somebody who encountering homeless people and keeps giving money, as we all do, and um. I never realized, he never really accepted that person on a human one-to-one -one basis, on a connection of any sort. And how many times have we done that sort of thing, you know? And it, it comes from, from fear. I mean, actually, this person said she had fear that, uh, that she couldn't create a boundary. Where would it end? He'd end up living with her, he or she. So this, this fear that comes in that, that just throws us back into our mind from our hearts. And I, I, I have a, a couple of uh, very similar experiences. Once when I was in India, when I first went to India, I was traveling on a train actually with my father and my wife-to-be, Parvati, and my brother, Lakshman, and uh, we were going from Benares. The train had yet to start. And I went out to get a few things of food, some bananas and so on. And I got back onto the car, the train car. And 
standing right in front of me was a leper whose the ends of his fingers had been eroded due to the disease. So he had no digital uh, access, shall we say. And he looked at me and, and he put his hands together uh, like, can you help me? And immediately without thinking anything, I just, I had bananas in my hands. I gave him banana. And then he looked at me and looked down at his hand, which had no fingers, and the banana, which he had grasped with his wrists, basically, or his palms. And it was obvious, wait a minute, <laughs> you're going to have to help further here. You're going to have to get close to him, and you're going to have to peel the banana so that he can eat it. And... So a little flip went on, you know, my self-preservation. Am I going to get leprosy? You know, that the craziness that happens once we leave the heart space, the space of compassion, and we enter in how do I protect myself, you know, like this lady in, in the talk with Ram, uh, that Ram Dass, uh, that we're going to place shortly. I have never forgotten that moment of, of hesitation to peel this banana. I did. And of course, I went through all of the mental conniptions, uh, as I mentioned. And uh, that, that happened, you know, a long, many, many decades ago. And that led me to think of just now, I'm taking a walk. I take a morning walk with my dog early in the morning and we stop by a neighbor who's got another dog that they like playing together. So it's like a play date. It's early in the morning. I'm not the most loquacious at that time. People who know me will laugh when they hear that. And uh, he is a man who has retired. I think he's taking care of his mother. And he does not have much interaction with people whatsoever. I can see that, you know, he, he's lonely. He wants to chat and just have some kind of, you know, back and forth with, with somebody. And he's a very sweet man. And I, I can I just watch my hesitancy to engage because I'm not yet ready to have any kind of real conversations at that hour, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's not like it's six in the morning or eight in the morning. And I, I can feel the withdrawal I am doing in order for me to have my quote-unquote space. And it's unnerving after all these years. Uh, fortunately, having enough mindfulness practice, I, I'm seeing all my motivations and I'm seeing um, all of the protection mechanisms and the neurotic stuff. Uh, but uh, the reality that we all have uh, where we back off, once we have an initial spontaneous um, act of generosity... And by the way, in this particular case, and in many cases, and I've said this before uh, on, on different podcasts, on mind rolling particularly, uh, I mean, you, you, you just have to, to look at the way in which, as Simone Weil said uh, many, many years ago, the most generous act that you can perform for another human being is to pay a complete attention. And I saw in that moment that I, you know, it, it, obviously the, the story of, of the leper and giving the banana having to peel it is, is sort of very transparent. But just being in a moment with somebody and resisting paying that kind of attention in that moment, um, there was a real lesson. And I know we all have this and it's... Uh, uh, there are actions that you can take. I mean, Ram Dass, and by the way, in this talk, talks a lot about um, the balance of the mind and the heart. 
And uh, that's uh, a very important uh, perspective that we can that, that we need to keep in mind. We can't be too much in the heart, not enough in the mind, too much in the mind, not much in the heart. And when I say too much in the heart, of course, there's no way you can be too much in the heart. But there is a way that the wisdom part, the discriminating wisdom part, which Buddhist thought uh, really represents and how, that why we get together at these retreats that we're doing a couple times a year in Maui and Boone, which are going to happen, by the way, next year in 23, uh, is um, very important. That's why we have these teachers and that's why there's a blend uh, of this uh, throughout Ramdas's history and and all of us that were with Nimkaroli Baba back in that day. Um, so Ramdas calls it a dialogue between the mind and the heart. It's and it's an exercise. I mean, for me, going to see this neighbor, you know, uh, at at one point when I take my little walk, knowing I I have a knowing that. I have resistance, and I'm exercising that. I mean, this is just a small, teeny, tiny thing. You know, he's completely fine with whatever it is our engagement is in that moment, but I am, I'm acutely aware of my resistance. And that is what one would call just exploring or uh, the, the, yeah, I guess that's a good word, exploring the potential for compassion, exploring the heart in that way, heart-mind. And um, Einstein, he quotes Einstein here. It's a beautiful quote. It's something like, what we need to be doing is widening our circle of compassion. So these are actions that we can take, you know, I don't know if it needs to be a New Year's resolution particularly. I'm not sure about New Year's resolutions. I mean, it's not bad. Uh, but I'm, I'm more into uh, mindfulness of all of the situations which we bump into from day to day, which can help us in, in any kind of transformation, but particularly in our engagement with people. Just watch how paying attention is sometimes so very difficult. Uh, we have boundaries. We have space that we've got to maintain, our space. I mean, one of the worst things that ever happened to me, I mean, that's a little dramatic, but I was in India with K.C. Tuari, this great, uh, great being. Krishnas calls him his uh, Indian father and spent the most time with him. He was who Maharaji said, you take care of the Westerns when he left that body. And he, he just was extraordinarily important to many of us Westerners. And uh, he, well, there's a movie, Brilliant Disguise, by the way, you can watch anywhere. A little commercial for Brilliant Disguise, the Samadhi of KC Tuari. It's on Amazon Prime and Google Play and Vimeo, all of it, Apple. Uh, so he was somebody who every minute action, he was all about awareness of it. And uh, I had another incident where he and I were together up in the Himalayas and somebody said, oh, there's a Baba there wants to see you. And we went there and I could tell right away that this Baba was going to give me the one, you know, spiritual Hinduism 101. And he did. And I resisted that so harshly. And I saw he's completely wrapped listening to this man speak. And this man didn't have like, a, you know, a millimeter of what Tuari carried in his being. And, and I was rejecting it. Jeez, I'm telling all these stories of my um, poor, uh, uncompassionate behavior. Uh, and he said, Tuari said to me, what, what's the deal? Well, he, know, he knew I was so wildly uncomfortable. Well, I, I, he was gonna, I knew he was going to give me that spirituality, Hinduism 101, and he did, and it's like, and he said, every word is 
divine presence or something like that. You know, wow, we have so much resistance. It's just amazing. Um, what else did I want to say here? Uh, yeah, just talking about, of course, Ram Dass talks about connection, uh, and that led me, you know, to, f- to further uh, think about, we just did a retreat about uh, relationship, interconnectivity, and interbeing in Maui, the second uh, retreat since uh, Ram Dass hasn't been with us. Of course, we didn't do it for a couple of years because of COVID. And it, it, it was all about transcending separateness. I mean... The, the idea that, uh, you know, separation and isolation, which we've had a lot of, obviously through COVID restrictions and pandemic uh, closure and all, that has led to some severe issues with many, many people. And I... Uh, that was a major part of what we were trying to dissect at this retreat. And um, the idea that we are completely connected, you know, with, with everything and everyone. And the more that we do the kinds of things that we, I've just given some examples of, separating ourselves out for one reason of protection or another is uh, so blatantly obvious in the world that we are living in right now. It's, it's, it's quite unbelievable. So talk about um, an, you know, an antidote. Is that going to be the right thing? To, it's a little harshly put, antidote to the way that we... Uh, live in separation and protect ourselves and use all defense mechanisms to create, you know, that separate feeling because that feels safer when it's actually the opposite. And it's, uh, I've talked about this before, that the each one of us has had an ineffable experience of some sort that transcended this kind of separation. It's through a psychedelic, it's through a book, it's through a teacher, it's through a piece of music, which it was for me way back when with uh, my, that first experience. I've talked about, again, on Mind Rolling, a lot of uh, just being hearing John Coltrane live for the first time. Uh, that was it for me. I couldn't explain it, but it was something that I could relate to that led me to trust that deeper place inside and uh, trust is a huge, huge um, leverage on the path out of this separation feeling and into more of what, uh, what can I do for you? And I'm not going anywhere. And it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not going to go to the point where I'm going to continue to protect myself, even if initially I have this incredible spontaneous uh, reaction, generosity. And every, everyone's had some kind of experience, ineffable experience. And, and you sort of build on that. You build on that trust. And it happens more and more. Of course, practice is necessary. Meditation, chanting, yoga, whatever it may be, it opens up the possibility of having that uh, potential to transform the separation. And that intuition uh, leads, it just leads to being more comfortable. We are, become more comfortable in our skin which leads to being more uh, at ease with the, the initial uh, generous um, offering to anybody. We're not, then we, we're not stopping like to think whether we should peel the banana. We just are at ease with going through peeling the banana. Hmm... Yeah, and that intuition leads us, of course, to the the reality. There is a deeper wisdom, a universal intelligence uh, 
that is perfection. So I just wanted to uh, share that for this new year of 2023 and, 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 and share this kind of anniversary for me of 10 years. Uh, it's been so enriching to have uh, to do all these podcasts, both here uh, introducing Ramdas talks, which I know lately Jackie's been doing, um, just to help out in terms of all all the different kinds of things that uh, are going on with this foundation and mind rolling, of course. And if you haven't checked it out, please do mind rolling on Be Here Now Network. And the, just again, the, the amount of friends that I've made through this podcast is extraordinary. So I'm really, really feel um, quite graced to to have this and have been doing this for so 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 long. Get all these extraordinary insights into uh, that that allow the balance that I'd like to talk about on these podcasts to take place. So, thank you for being here. Thank you being, for being with me, whoever of you have been with me for a long time. I know many of you catch up on the early Ramdas talks, hopefully the mind-rolling talks as well. And I really appreciate it and, and, and feel very connected. So, this is Ramdas here and now, a bonus episode. We'll see you next time. In uh, New York City at St. John the Divine Cathedral, um, the course was entitled uh, How Can I Help? And it had in it uh, maybe 300 of us, uh, and the uh, requirements of the course, the course was focused around homelessness, the issue of homelessness in New York. And the requirement for the course was that everybody in the course volunteer into some kind of um, service activity around homelessness. It could be around um, a shelter or a soup kitchen, or it could be around a political action uh, or a housing protest or whatever. And then each person kept a diary and then we had an open microphone in which uh, people shared what happened to them. And um, one of the women that shared that day, um, what she said was that she was working either at a soup kitchen or a shelter. She said, but that isn't really what I wanted to speak about. That's not what's in my diary. What's in my diary is about an experience that I had that I've been having. She said, every time I leave my apartment in Manhattan and I walk down the street for the past year <clears throat> to go either to the supermarket or to get the bus, she said, I, on the corner there has been <clears throat> a man that has been begging and he's had a paper cup and he's been shaking coins uh, in the cup. And um, she said, I go by him and he's been there for almost a year. He's the local homeless person. And she said, when I go by, sometimes I put a quarter in and sometimes I don't. And then she sort of smiled and she says, actually, she said, I've worked out, since he's there so long, I've worked out a little budget in my mind of $2.50 a week. So I put in a quarter and I do it in a random way. So She said, but as a result of this course, I realized that while I had been giving him money, I had never acknowledged his existence as a human being. And she said, I started to think about why that was. And she said, I realized I was afraid. And what was I afraid of? She said, I realized I wasn't afraid that he was going to rape me. It was daylight. I, I felt safe in that respect. She said, I didn't feel he was going to steal my pocketbook. After all, we'd been passing each other for a year now. She said, no, when I looked at my fear, she said, I was afraid that if I acknowledged his existence, he'd end up living in my house with me. She said, if I allowed him in as a fellow human being, as us, how would I draw the line? Where would the boundary be? 
As I thought about that story, which I've really reflected about a great deal in the past few years, I realized the pain that that woman represents for most of us, that in the turning off of other people with our minds to protect ourselves, we actually turn off a certain quality of spontaneous generosity that exists in our hearts, a quality of compassion. It's interesting, it's as if we have a dialogue between our mind and our heart. Our mind, our prefrontal lobes, our intellectual analytic mind, is the most powerful instrument for the protection of us, of us as a separate entity, to keep us alive, to keep us safe, to keep us efficient, to keep us successful. The heart, on the other hand, and the mind discriminates between this and that, and it defines boundaries. The heart, on the other hand, has this quality of generosity. The heart doesn't have boundaries. You experienced the statement I said yesterday in the course, my heart goes out to you is a common expression. And when you know when you fall into love with somebody, when you're in a space of love with them, their happiness becomes your happiness. And under those conditions, you say, you need what? My car? You need money? You need my home? What do you need? Take it. And the heart says, sure, take everything. And the mind is saying, now cool it, wait a second. You've got to remember, you've got to pay health insurance. You've got a lot of responsibilities. And in a way, that woman was describing a dialogue that exists within us between our heads and our hearts. A dialogue between the, the, the protection of our separateness and the participation, the boundaryless participation in the universe around us. And what I guess my thesis is, is that when that balance, when that gets out of balance, when one gets too much in the mind or too much in the heart, one isn't realizing one's fullest human potential, and the result is that there is pain and suffering for one. And part of what I'm talking about, about helping others, is the exercising of the qualities of compassion in oneself in order to bring in back into balance something which is very much out of balance in this society because this society has focused so much on individuality, on your personal development and gain and success, in which, in order to gain that success, other people and other things become objects to be manipulated to get that place. And at the most extreme, it becomes where you can step over anybody or anything to get what you want, and when that person gets what they want and becomes, they become a mythic figure in our culture. We may not like them, but we have them. I mean, Donald Trump is an example of that. He's not somebody necessarily that you admire in all of his dimensions as a human being or feel great compassion coming from that being. Now, in a way, I'm not talking about the person Donald Trump. I'm talking about the mythic role model. Whether we like it or not, that is a role model that we have valued. We have rewarded it, and he is, as he's on the front of magazines, whether for ill or good. And it reminds me at times, because I've taught and studied anthropology in the past, it reminds me of those tribes that take a princess and they, a woman, a beautiful young girl, and they honor her for a whole year, and then they throw her over a cliff. And it's a way, it's like a sacrificial animal we use. And we do that with our politicians, too, by the way. So, the here's a quote from Einstein, from Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, 
restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Now, when you look at why it is so hard to open your heart in this kind of broad way and to acknowledge that you are not only a separate entity, but that you are part of the web of humanity, starting from family and community and uh, nation-state and ecosystem and species, species and uh, cosmos, etc. When you examine that, you see that one of the reasons for the fear is the fear of suffering. It's the fear that the immensity of the suffering in the world will overwhelm you. And in a way, you come here because you live in the marketplace and you deal with suffering all the time, and you come here to the top of the world to be among each other, to be with each other, and in a way, in this very luxurious setting, it seems as if a lot of the suffering of the world sort of disappears into the background. And you have these compartments in the mind that say, you know, I gave at the office, I, I do the service, so now I can have a, a, a moment without the pain of the suffering. The predicament with those categories is that every time you turn off something, even for a moment, the cost to you of turning it off reduces the, the immediacy and the fullness of this moment, because this moment you and I are existing has in it all of it. It has in it the joy and the pleasure and the beauty of the day. It also has in it all of the rest of the stuff going on in the world, the fear and the violence and the turmoil and the suffering. And it's interesting where our phenomenal field ends. Because you and I came out of an undifferentiated identity with all things, then we learned we were separate. But you have had many experiences in your life, one way or another, where you have felt that kind of connection with all things. Maybe it's lying under the stars. Maybe it's uh, uh, it occurred in church. Maybe it occurred uh, whenever you transcended your separateness. It, could have occurred in a traumatic experience. It could have occurred when you lost somebody you loved. It could have occurred uh, chemically. It could have occurred through meditation. There are thousands of ways it could occur. But see, the predicament is, once you have experienced that connection with all things, and that's part of your humanity too, then you don't know what to do with that, and so you end up denying it to go back into your separateness. And as I said in the relationships talk yesterday, you live with this predicament, this tension that's created by the statement, we are all one, but it's my television set. You know? Or as the Sufis say, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. Which really should be said, trust in Allah and tie your camel. Meaning you do both of them. You, and that's part of what I'm going to be discussing. Now, because to open to that part of yourself that's connected to all things, and how do you handle the suffering? How do you handle the suffering without denying it or closing off from it or building some intellectual structure to protect you? Like today, today, 35,000 women are standing there watching their baby die of starvation of malnutrition. 35,000. I mean, just take any one of them. Take one human being, one mother, knowing the power of the relationship between mother and child, take one of them and feel what that pain must be like to feel impotent to give your child, your breast is dry, there's no food, and the child is dying. And that's just one. And there's 35,000 today, and tomorrow there's going to be another 35,000. How would you deal with the immensity of that? You go back into the numbers, well, that's, we're doing the best we can. There are a number of 
ways that the mind rationalizes the immensity of the suffering because the question, of course, is whose child is it? If it's in Uganda or in uh, Bangladesh or in India, you know, is it my child? Is it our child? Is it her child? Whose child is it? If it were my child, I'd sure as hell do something about it. As long as I can think it's their child, my mind protects me from the pain of that immensity of that suffering. My suggestion is that we have to find a way to deal with suffering other than by rational devices to protect ourselves from it. Because as long as there is a part of the universe you close yourself off from, you are denying the fullness of your humanity, and you will always feel at out, you will never feel at home in the universe. Because the universe includes suffering, and until you can be at peace in the universe with the inclusion of suffering. Now, part of the way I have dealt with it, is I have recognized different levels of reality in myself. Because through, the, through my spiritual practices, I've come into planes of consciousness where I have looked upon the universe with such awe. It is awe-full, in the sense of full of awe, because of what the Chinese call the Tao, or the way of things, or the, the harmonies, or the forces are in balance, or the laws of the universe. You feel the unfolding of the law of the universe, and you look at it and you say, and this is a very strange thing to say, but to, when you experience it, it's such a, a valid feeling. You experience it and you look and you say, it's perfect. And that includes cyclones and storms and birth and death and because you look in the you go into the in the in the jungle or in the forest and you see trees flowering growing new trees trees decaying you see a whole natural order of things you see the, and when you're quiet enough and not busy judging but just appreciating this is the appreciative mind not the judging mind you just appreciate and you say isn't it all extraordinary the way it works i mean you study when you're, like I was a psychologist, so I studied the way the cognitive processes work and the human motivational qualities work. But if you are an astronomer or you're a geneticist, if you go into, if you're a musician or an astrologer, I mean, if you go into any domain carefully and precisely enough, it opens before you as this incredible set of lawful relationships. Not man's mind law, human mind law, but a kind of a deeper wisdom. There is a wisdom in the universe. And as you have tasted of that, there is a faith that develops in you. It's as if you say, I don't understand the mystery, but I have a sense that there is a, um, there is a wisdom inherent within it. And that wisdom includes all of it. It includes the suffering. It includes the death. It includes loss. It includes all of it. I work with um, um, people that are in uh, approaching death. Uh, that's one of the things I do a great deal of. And I, I said, I think I've said this in one of the other meetings, but I'll just do the short discussion of it. Very often, when that person is approaching the point where they have done everything they could to stay alive, and it's still not going to work because the cancer is moving too quickly through the body or the AIDS uh, symptoms are uh, manifesting so quickly. There's a point where they, their body gets weakened and where their will, where they give up. There's a giving up. Now, in our society, and especially for many of you folks, the term giving up is, is like a red flag before a bull. I mean, it's, it's a statement of such, it's the worst thing you could think of doing is giving up. But at that moment, 
when they give up because they can't lift their hand anymore and they're going to be taken to the toilet and all their, all their self, all the components of who they thought they were are dissolving. Their dreams are gone. Their control over their bladder is gone. Their shame, their embarrassment, everything. It's just all. And they finally go, ah. Oh. Now, if that person is surrounded by people who are saying, fight on, hold on, come on, you can do it, don't give up. What they experience at that moment is a tremendous amount of guilt for having given up. But often when I'm sitting with them and I'm just there, I'm quiet in my mind and heart because I'm watching nature, I'm watching a whole process go on because we all die. Death is a part of the process of life. And as that person is approaching, dropping their body, leaving their body, because from where I'm sitting, we leave our bodies. We are not our body. Whether you call it soul in Christianity or whatever label you want to apply to it. Awareness, something. At that moment, sometimes I am privileged because I'm just quiet and present, and therefore my mind is an environment for that person Whereas that suffering leads to, and the pain and the suffering leads to a surrender, at that moment we're just right there together. Oftentimes what it's like is seeing an egg crack open. And what comes forth is a being, an awareness, that is so much at peace and so radiant. It's like seeing the birth of a spiritual entity out of the ashes. It's like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And suddenly that person is there, fully present, and they are no longer busy being the person dying, even though their body is dying. And when I'm privy to that, I feel like I have just been given incredible grace to be allowed to be present at that moment, to watch that person come out of the shell that they've been locked in, as Einstein said, the prison of the mind. Because that's what they're doing. They're escaping from the prison of the mind at that moment. What I'm facing in myself at that point are two levels of reality. See, I have just seen, I just have witnessed at that with that person that that suffering, which I would have taken away from them in a minute if I could have, I would have taken it away with all kinds of uh, medicines or whatever, but I couldn't do it. That as hard as it is for me to admit it, that suffering was grace. That suffering was the stuff that allowed that person to awaken. And that's the paradox that you face. That the suffering is part of the plan of things, it's part of the unfolding, and it also stinks. I mean, that's a paradox. It's perfect and it stinks. And the paradox is reflected in the way you respond as a human being. Your emotional human heart is breaking over the pain of this person you've come to love. And at the same moment, there is a deeper wisdom in you that's saying, ah, so. And now this is leading to this, ah, so. If you don't have that deeper wisdom, then the pain is unbearable, and then the suffering seems unjust, and you're railing against God, and you're saying, God, why have you done this to this person whom I love? So what we're talking about now is the balance between those two qualities, the balance between an inner wisdom in you that you all have that allows you to look at the universe and say, ah, so, yes. There are many um, images, like in China, the Kuan Yin, which is the uh, goddess of compassion, or God, goddess of compassion, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and Kuan Yin is shown with a little smile at the edge of the mouth sometimes. And it is presented as the smile of unbearable compassion. The smile, not the grimace, the smile of unbearable compassion. Now, at the ultimate end of your inner work, you are so rooted in that wisdom 
that as your death will come, it will come. You'll do what you can, but as it will be, it will be, and you can even look at your own death without fear. And that is the end point of spiritual work for a human being. And I would say to you that that is a very critical agenda for you, whether you are willing to admit it or not. Because otherwise, you're spending a lot of your time avoiding the thought that you're going to die and act, making believe that although everybody else does, you won't. And the end point of that is a wonderful story about the the time when a uh, uh, an army was uh, violating, uh, killing people, and disemboweling the monks in in uh, these mountain times. It was an old, an old time when they had swords instead of guns. And uh, there was a particularly ferocious officer who had was known to kill the monks very cruelly. And he came into a village and uh, he said to his adjutant, well, how is it in the village? And the adjutant said, all of the people in the village are, um, are bowing down to you. And all the monks in the monastery have left except for one monk. And the thought that there was one monk left in the monastery who infuriated this officer. And he went to the monastery and he pushed open the gates and he walked in. And the monk was standing in the middle of the courtyard and he walked up to the monk and he said, don't you know who I am? I could take my sword and run it through your belly without blinking an eye. And don't you know who I am? I am somebody who could have your sword run through my belly without blinking an eye. <laughs> At which point, apocryphally, the officer bowed and left. We'd like to think it came out that way anyway, but it might not have. <laughs> now, so, um, you, uh, you, begin to recognize the predicament. The predicament is that you are out of balance, that you're in your mind and not fully in your heart because you're afraid of the pain that the suffering will cause. And then you realize that you're going to have to open to that pain instead of pushing against it by writing a check or something to put it away. You're going to have to open it until this moment has in it the fullness and you have to find a place in you which is findable where your joy includes all of the universe just as it is. It isn't a joy that compartmentalizes so you're not noticing the rest of it. And once you recognize that part of your work on earth is reestablishing this balance of going back in, for example, um, uh, with with me and my family, uh, I was so busy getting ahead and achieving that, you know, when the, the family who could, they didn't understand me, and I found people that did, and then I wouldn't spend time with them, and, you know, I just grew apart from everybody. And then as I began to realize that I had closed off a part of me that made my life meaningful because I was part of the web of the human condition, that I was treating my humanity, my connection to other beings, as if it was some kind of an error and that I could just control myself by pulling in because all I could control was me. I couldn't control anybody else. And my fear of loss of control was so immense. And so I turned around and looked back at what I had left behind because I had left behind my role as a voting citizen. I had left behind my role as a member of the family and so on. And at that point, as I've mentioned a few days, um, I realized that my father uh, was old and he really needed me. And I was available, I could do that. And my stepmother couldn't take care of him fully. And they had a big house and I sort of based myself in the basement of the house and made sure everything went well. I was on tour a lot, but I made sure he was protected and taken care of. And I did that for 10 years actually, till he died. And people would come up to me and they would say, aren't you wonderful to do that? Aren't you kind to do that for your father? As if I were making a sacrifice. But the truth of the matter was that at the beginning, I milked it as much as I could. I'd say, well, somebody has to do it. But then as time went on, I began to feel 
that this was part of what my birth was about, that I was part of a family. That was my genetic identity. I mean, I might have a spiritual identity that had nothing to do. I mean, people said, well, aren't you Jewish? And I learned how to say, well, only on my parents' side. <laughs> or only this incarnation. I mean, I had a lot of cute little ways to deal with this issue that I had to deal with all of the different aspects, my spiritual, but on the incarnational, in terms of me, this time Richard Alpert, or now Ramdas, there was dad and he needed me, and when I took care of him, over the time, and by the time he died, I felt like a whole part of my life had come back into focus and I had gotten meaning in my life as to who I was out of that web of fulfilling that, that role. Now, um, what is required, of course, for each of us is to listen, because, I mean, you can't, uh, each person has to hear what their exercise will be to cultivate the quality of compassion in themselves. Like, uh, Mo Siegel was telling me he works uh, in a hospital. He just goes and he helps out in a hospital. And that just keeps stretching, you're just dealing, you're getting close to the edge, not keeping your distance, but coming in close and dealing with the stuff that awakens in yourself. Because there's a tendency, that, and there's so much suffering, then there's a thing that happens that you say, well, if I'm going to work with suffering, which is the most important suffering to work with? Because I don't want to be caught working with a less important suffering. <laughs> See? And Edmund Burke said, the worst mistake is to do nothing because you can only do a little. And uh, because it's so vast, I mean, it's an ocean of suffering. It's an ocean of suffering. An ocean. Everywhere you look, you will see suffering. I mean, if you scratch the surface of the YPO, you will find plenty of suffering. You don't have to go into the ghettos. There is suffering in the human condition. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.